Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. Now your hosts. Hello and welcome to the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. I'm John Alois, joined by Sean Degenhart. Acknowledged. And John Redling Schaefer. Warp speed. <laughs> Whatever platform you're following us on, please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Please leave us a review so more people find the show. You can share it on social media and tag us. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at Hub Hyperion. Email us at podcast at the Hyperion Hub.com. We like to kick things off with our Disney views, and this week, a few people were pretty upset by some Disney uh, headlines recently revolving around the live-action remake of the 1997 animated feature, Hercules. Who? Who was upset? (laughs) Sounds good on its face. What's wrong with it? (laughs) What have you said up until this point? I've said, ugh. Yeah, there you go. That's really the only word you've used, isn't it? This is from Variety from November 2nd. Disney's live-action Hercules will be more experimental and inspired by TikTok, (laughs) says producer (laughs) Joe Russo. All right. Now, what does that mean? We'll see. Joe and Anthony, the Russo brothers, who've directed Marvel films for Disney, including Captain America Winter Soldier, Avengers Infinity War, and Endgame, are co-producing Hercules. Guy Ritchie is directing the film. He directed the live-action Aladdin, which made a billion dollars in 2019. But let's take a look at the actual quote. There are, there are questions about how you translate it as a musical, Joe you Russo don't. said. Audiences today have been trained by TikTok, I right? <laughs> Sean what really is, seems excited for this. What do you what think? What is their expectation of what that musical looks like and feels like? That can be a lot of fun and help us push the boundaries a little bit, a little bit on how you execute a modern musical. How do we interpret that? So, I mean, are these, yeah, are these <laughs> short videos with the stupid voice over top of it? I mean, what is this going to be? I don't think that's the approach that is we want like to take. the office goes Hercules and you get all this fourth wall breaking uh, and acknowledging what just happened? I mean, we're going to have know. things I mean, flashing and words on the screen. That's and, not what know. I'm picturing. I'm picturing quick cuts if when they go to the musical segments it's like what you would watch on on YouTube or TikTok um, on as far as music videos are edited. Um, it, I don't know. I'm open minded to whatever they want to. This guy. Yeah. It's the Russos. I mean, how we should trust. That's what I said. It's the Russos. <laughs> what are they doing? Well, I think you're right. So I mean, is each scene going to be five seconds? I mean, no, you, no, I mean, no, no, you, no. how do you? I think it'll be during the musical segments. I could, I could be completely wrong. So they're just going to speed here. up the music? No. <laughs> no. This is the dumbest thing Again, I've ever I heard. I think it's quick cuts. I, I don't know. We, we don't know. But I will say this. Um, I'm with Sean. I'm a it. Yep. I'm all for something different. Oh, here we go. Um, yeah. Other uh, than uh, the uh, regurgitated live-action version of the animated film. Some of my favorites have been ones that didn't follow that animated script, like... Cinderella. Al- I did like Cinderella, but that Fair one was enough. that one was traditional. But I'm thinking more along the lines of Alice in Wonderland, Pete's Dragon, Jungle Book, Maleficent, Cruella. These were all different takes on the characters that we knew, and I like different. I'm you know as much as I enjoyed Lion King, and um, Aladdin, and Beauty and the Beast. They're very by the script pretty much. I mean, it's almost scene for scene and shot for shot. And some 
instances. So I'm fine with them trying something different. I don't know what this means. Let's. I'm going to hold judgment until I see a teaser trailer. I'm not. Okay. Well, that's that's fine. <laughs> We've gathered. No, but I, 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 I'll give it a shot. But if it's you know, if it's anything like the social media star that TikTok is. I'm going to give it about 30 seconds and then go away. Well, and I'm hoping it's not like, you know, the pop singles that would be recorded for radio. I'm hoping it's not just, you know, an hour and 35 minutes of that. I mean, that that movie is filled with energy and beautiful gospel music. It's a great score. Yeah, I think that there's opportunities to try some new things. That's all I'm saying. Or I don't yeah. <laughs> we could go with a completely original idea. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I'm all for that, too. Yeah. Sounds like you need to reach out to the Russo brothers. <laughs> they called me earlier Did today. They? I all wasn't right. able to answer. <laughs> they didn't listen this time. All right. <laughs> yeah, I'm all for it. Uh, you know, I mean, a lot of people are tired of the live action remakes, um, or at least they're vocal about it. People are still watching them. So um, until people stop watching them, they're still going to make them. So we'll see what happens. I have not watched... I can't bring myself to watch Pinocchio. I I haven't either. Nope. Yeah, I, I will, and I'll probably watch it back to back with Netflix's version, Guillermo del Toro's version of Pinocchio, which I think looks beautiful. Um, but this, uh, the Disney version, I'll let you know what I think of it. 1947. Good year for you guys? It was. 75 years ago? You know, you remember high school, college for one or both of you? No. Oh. Uh, Post-World War II, we know that um, America is uh, moving away from the cities and they're becoming more suburban. There's a and, great big yeah, view. There you go. So as we head into the 1950s, there's a sense of optimism, patriotism and excitement. optimism. Yes. Well, throughout history, people have hunted for things. The Northwest Passage, witches, gold. Well, from 1938 through the 40s and 50s, in America, certain members of Congress hunted communists. Yes, we're going to talk about communism today, friends. And you're going to say, why? Well, why? There, was a very, <laughs> there was a very famous person who testified in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee. I'll give you one guess who that might have been. He may be from Missouri. <laughs> so the Harry S. Truman uh, Presidential Library and Museum, the National Archives, gives a very good background of what this committee was. After World War II, the United States and the Soviet Union, yes, the Soviet Union, found themselves on opposite sides of a Cold War, which pitted the democratic United States against the communist Soviet Union. As the Cold War intensified, the frenzy over the perceived threat posed by communists in the U.S. became known as the Red Scare. This committee was created in 1938 to investigate alleged disloyalty and rebel activities. Is that some sort of Star Wars thing? It could be. Okay. On the part of private citizens, public employees, and organizations suspected of having communist ties. Citizens suspected of having ties to the Communist Party would be tried in a court of law. Also during this time, Senator Joseph McCarthy, go Badgers, began a campaign, he's from Wisconsin, began a campaign against alleged communists in the U.S. government and other institutions. From 1950 to 54, McCarthyism described the practice of accusing federal government employees of having affiliations with communism and leaking information. Government employees could be blacklisted and could lose their jobs. The threat of communism was a driving force that created a wedge between society and the United States government. During this time, civil liberties, national security began to blur together, and U.S. citizens felt a sense of uncertainty. Some Americans felt that their personal freedoms were being taken away, while others believed this committee and McCarthyism were necessary to secure national security. Government officials felt the same types of pressures on the home front, 
And were they overstepping government powers or just keeping America safe from outsiders that wanted to cause that wanted to cause harm within the system? So I bring this to you not because we want to talk about a random representative from California by the name of Richard Milhouse Nixon, who did serve on one of these committees. Yes, Milhouse. Go ahead, yes. throw in your Simpsons references. <laughs> so uh, but, but there was a gentleman who testified on October 24th, 1947, 75 years ago, when he was sworn in, said his name was Walter E. Disney of Los Angeles, California. This, as best as my research can tell, uh, stems from a, a tangent that the committee really wanted to dive into Hollywood and get to the bottom of what relationship, now they had some assumptions, relationship that the unions out there had with communism. And I know we've had at least one guest who's talked about the strike, right, um, that Walt went through. Jake Freeman, we had him on the show. He wrote the book, The Disney Revolt, The Great Labor War of Animation's Golden Age. And I think we all can remember the taste that that whole strike left in Walt's mouth anyway, right? And so in 1947, he now puts up his right hand and gets sworn in and offers his testimony in terms of what he knows, or potentially knows, about communism in Hollywood. And I have to first start, I did get the testimony from DisneyDreamer.com, if you want to look at it and read it. It's not very long. But the chief investigator of the committee swears him in, and he talks about how I'm a part owner you know, just a small <laughs> business owner uh, there in California with about 600 employees at the right. time. And he goes in to talk about a brief history of the studio, about 20 short subject cartoons and two features per year. And, you know, he then has to answer some questions about what business he may have done with Russia. So at first, you're reading the testimony going, are they going to grill him over his potential communist ties? No, he very quickly knows that he doesn't want to say anything like that um, and makes it very clear, hey, at some point we did sell certain videos over there, but they were returned back to us very quickly, right. very quickly. Some of the films, one of them that he mentions is Three Little Pigs. That's right. right. That's right. And, you know, it's clear that the, the, the small town boy was trying to show his loyalty to the United States as quickly as he could in a very uncomfortable setting. Then they go into the World War II propaganda. And he can kind of tout his patriotism and mm -hmm. how he really felt. Uh, he cites a Gallup poll that says 29% of the people admitted that some of their propaganda films influenced them into getting their taxes paid early to help the government and giving them a picture of what taxes will do to help the United States. Um, so in the end, he really wants to paint this picture of how loyal he is, as I think anyone would want to do in front of this committee, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and then uh, leaves it to the fact that, well, after the war, you know, we really focus on large audiences of children and felt it was important to focus back on our, our movies in that way. So after hearing that, the committee investigator, Cook, goes, all right, all right, so let's get to brass tacks. Do you believe... Or let me rephrase this. Do you have any people in your studio at the present time that you believe are communist or fascist employed there? Mm -hmm. Very loaded question, is it not? Walt's response, no. At the present time, I feel that everybody in my studio is 100% American. <laughs> so then they focus on past interactions. Do you feel that there were anybody that were communists employed at your studio? Yes. Direct quote. In the past, I had some people that I definitely feel were communists. And then they start leading questions about, well, now you, were, you went through a strike at your studio, right? And it's your opinion that the strike was instituted by members of the Communist Party to serve their purposes, right? Walt would respond, well, 
it proved itself so with time, and I definitely feel it was a communist group trying to take over my artists, and they did take them over. Hmm. He goes on to talk about how a delegation of my boys, mm -hmm. my artists, came to me and told me about a guy by the name of Mr. Herbert Sorrell, a name that should be familiar uh, to some who was the leader of the Conference of Studio Unions um, throughout, well, this whole committee's existence, quite frankly. He would be the, you know, the business manager of the Motion Picture Partners Union, uh, various locals, um, according to the L.A. Times, throughout the 50s. Walt uh, testified about Mr. Sorrell telling him, um, you know, whispering sweet nothings in his ears, you think I'm a communist, don't yeah. you, and things like that. And, you know, it, Walt demanded, he goes into the historical analysis that led up to the strike, he demanded an election. Um, you know, versus automatically conceding to the union, because, again, he's trying to paint a good picture of himself and his business in front of the committee. And, you know, he talks about the picket lines and how this Sorrell guy called his plant a sweatshop, and he's never, Walt saying, I've never had any labor trouble. I thought that, you know, this would be backed up by anybody in Hollywood. So quickly, Walt goes from showing his patriotism, I think, to kind of almost venting about mm -hmm. the strike and lamenting what it did to his business. Right. Yeah. And it, through that whole testimony, I find it interesting. First of all, uh, Walt even says in there, he was instructed never to discuss labor relations. Um, so the, the, the committee definitely had an agenda bringing him in because he wasn't the, the expert at the, at the company on labor negotiations and relations, but they knew having someone with that name, with that much clout, would carry headlines, would push whatever uh, thoughts and agendas they had forward. Um, I did think that was interesting, and, and especially when Walt kind of pushed himself away and said, once again, I wasn't involved in labor negotiations. But he definitely has an opinion on it, and he should. I mean, he was he was the... Uh, well, one of the owners, as he says. That's right. <laughs> well, and, and again, you have to, just as you said, think of this, not necessarily made for TV, but yeah, what's a name that everybody's going to know, going to recognize? Trusted exactly. family member of the family. Exactly. So eventually the chairman's had enough. He wants the wedge in. He's, he's, he's chomping at the bit. In other words, Mr. Disney, communists out there smeared you because you wouldn't knuckle under. So now we're getting to it, right? Well, I, this is Walt saying, I wouldn't go along with their way of operating. I insisted on it going through the National Labor Relations Board. You can tell he's probably prepped with Disney lawyers to say, make sure you tell him you tried to follow the law and everything leading up to it. I would have never given in to him because it was a matter of principle with me, and I fight for principles. My boys, here they are again, my boys have been there, have grown up in the business with me, and I didn't feel like I could sign them over to anybody. They were vulnerable at that time. They were not organized. It's a new industry. So this is dad mm -hmm. in, his, in his own mind sure. looking out mm -hmm. for his boys. Because Walt Disney Company was one of the last studios to be unionized. So he wanted to protect this utopian kind of campus setting that he had helped to create. And it wasn't always fair for everybody. And that's why they ended up siding with uh, the, the union. But at the same time, he was trying to maintain his level of relationship with everyone and stay really ununionized. Even though they had one internally, it really wasn't that powerful. Yeah, and I, and I think Walt also knew he had to offer some red meat 
to this committee when he went. I mean, well, let's let's be honest. He he had his own opinions yeah. about the process. He knew he. You're right. Everything you said, but I also think he's going in there saying, "I can't just go in there and say I don't know anything and I don't know anybody." You know, he had. It, there's got to be some external pressures as a business owner because if you didn't have any red meat, I think you were gonna, well. You must sympathize with him. Yeah. yeah. Do you think now they get very complimentary as as the testimony goes Correct. on? Do you think that he knew when he sat down at that table that they were not going to grill him? He was there to serve a purpose and help them tell their story. I think that's exactly true. Um, most of these congressional settings, from what I understand or appreciate, there's some prep work, and it's usually the witnesses' lawyer and the committee's lawyers say, "What what's the goal here?" What are you looking for me to talk about? Right. And that's where I was coming from. That, oh, do you have some names? Good. Make sure you throw those out. That's going to make us. This is going to help. This is, as you were saying, Sean. You know, this is the father figure that everybody knows. Um, yep, he's he knows too, and he he's doing his best to fight it. And he actually lists a few other names of uh, suspected communists. Uh, a couple animators, David Hilberman and Mortimer William Pomerantz were two of the names he mentions. And he goes in and actually did his research on Hilberman saying, well, you know, I looked into his record and I found that, number one, he had no religion. And number two, he had spent considerable time at the Moscow Art Theater studying <laughs> art direction or something. <laughs> and then uh, Mr. Pomerantz, uh, both of the, these animators left either in the late 30s or the early 40s. Uh, Mr. Pomerantz actually testified in front of the committee himself in 1952 and pled the Fifth Amendment. So hmm. I guess maybe you can make your own assumptions about Mr. Pomerantz, even though you're not supposed to do that when someone pleads the Fifth. Moving on. Uh, but so, you know everybody does. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, uh, the jury will disregard that question. Right. Yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. Prepare for brain scan. <laughs> right. So again, Walt concludes that, well, in my opinion, they are communists. No one has any way of proving those things. So he had clearly been trained by legal, say it's your opinion, don't say it's a fact because you don't want to get dinged with a you know a slander charge or something like that. Assuming these folks would have still had rights, I suppose. Um, and then I do kind of want to mention you know Walt goes into his personal opinion. He's asked his personal opinion of the Communist Party, and I actually really like his answer. I don't believe it's a political party. I believe it's an un-American thing. That's the first part. But then this. The thing I resent the most is that they're able to get into these unions, take them over, represent to the world that a group of people that are in my plant that I know are good, 100% Americans, are trapped. They're represented to the world as supporting all of these ideologies, and I feel they really ought to be smoked out and shown up for what they are so that all of the good, free causes in this country, all the liberalisms that really are American, can go out without the taint of communism. He, he goes into how it's his sincere feeling that... He doesn't think it's gotten very far, so he feels that Hollywood has tried to stop, or at least in his mind has successfully do this. But my favorite part of his testimony then talks about how he doesn't know how to qualify the idea of outlawing the Communist Party. And this is the part I really respect. I feel if, if the thing can be proven un-American, that it ought to be outlawed. I think in some way, though, it should be done without interfering with the rights of the people. Hmm. So even then, he knows he's got to say he hates communism. But he says, hey, we still got to respect the rights of the people to associate with groups that they want. So something I, I, I found very interesting uh, in the testimony, I loved 
this quote. First off, the question, aside from those pictures you made during the war, have you made any other pictures or do you permit pictures to be made at your studio containing propaganda? And he made, of course, anti-Hitler films uh-huh. and other anti-Nazi films as well. Walt Disney, no, we never have. During the war, we thought it was a different thing. It was the first time we ever allowed anything like that to go into films. We watch so that nothing gets into films that would be harmful in any way to any group or any country. We have large audiences of children and different groups, and we try to keep them as free from anything that would offend anybody as possible. We work hard to see that nothing of that sort creeps in. Now, this is a businessman, of course, but at the same time, I do feel he had a responsibility uh, in the 1940s and, and previously and moving forward to try to keep any sort of negative thoughts or opinions about any other culture out of the public eye. I, I, I truly believe that Walt uh, thought of it that way. He wanted to appeal to a mass audience. He understood that his audiences were global and he tried to keep that in mind as he made movies. Yeah, throughout the testimony, you you can feel his stream of consciousness. It is. It's my goal here is to make good films for the children. I did what I had to do during World War II. I'm proud of what we did. That was what I needed to do for my country. And when I, it comes to my business, I protect my business. I protect my boys. I try to protect my people from outside influences. But, yes, I think you're right. I think he really wanted to make sure that his reputation going forward, you know, in Hollywood, he had to go back to Hollywood when this was over, was that, hey, I I did my part. I testified in front of the committee, but I was fair. So in the end, you know, he goes on with a couple more pleasantries. Like you said, the chairman really wants to thank him and some of the other folks from Hollywood that would be there. Um, and, and it didn't last very long. Um, but, you know, I do have to offer that the chairman of the committee at that time, because it would have switched every two years, uh, J. Parnell Thomas, Congressman Thomas from New Jersey, uh, later served time <coughs> in federal prison for corruption. Mm. But anyway, mm. so, you know, my conclusions are pretty straightforward. 75 years ago, the most talked about threat, if we want to use that word, in the eyes of the average American, so to speak, or at least in Congress's mind that the average American cared about, Walt Disney found himself in the middle of it. Honest to goodness guy trying to run a business. Still, I think, feeling a little jilted over the strike. Um, But also felt, as a Midwestern boy, his obligation to go to D.C. and testify when Congress needed him to testify. So, again, not our typical episode, but I thought it was worth noting, especially as we look at the 75th anniversary of it. Who were the other um, guests that were invited? I mean, was he the most notable? Was he sort of filling a purpose in you know his place in society? And were there other representatives from maybe more corporate places? Or well, and throughout the fifteen to twenty years, I mean, when you think about it, yes, you would have the titans of the industry. You'd have someone from the car companies. You'd have someone from the movies. You know, you'd have someone from the sciences. Throughout, mm-hmm. you know, they're really. There were many, many big names, but the later years focused on the people who were outed, and they were be they would be, you know, brought in for show, um, and all, a good number of them pled the fifth. I mean, there were a few convictions, um, but the party itself was never outlawed. There would always be these reports or recommendations that would go to the full Congress, and if they were approved, it was just simply, you know, hey, we're going to watch this and make sure the IRS gets a little more authority to 
you know, look at their tax practices and things like that. So it really was, you're right. I mean, it was the titans of industry that would be there and offer it that particular day. You know, I think that was Walt's show. And I want to point out where we are in Walt's life. So this is pre-Disneyland. This is pre-TV. Really, the, the public only knows Walt Disney mostly by name. Uh, and some interviews mm-hmm. on news. Uh, he did a trailer for Snow, for Snow White in 1937. But he was not in everybody's living room every Sunday night right. at this point. So he sounds very matter-of-fact when he's answering questions. It's not the Uncle Walt that we will see on TV um, you know, less than a decade later. So just interesting. A lot had happened to him in his life and both professionally and personally up until this point. And you're right. I think the strike rocked him to his core and he was still pretty upset by what happened with it. And, um, not saying he was targeting anybody, but there was a fear and it was, it was a fear that may be unfounded in many ways, but it was a fear that was creeping over America and also, especially in Hollywood. And um, it goes on to uh, some, some pretty rough times with McCarthyism. But at this point in 1947, everything's pretty new as far as the Cold War goes. Good job, John. Thank yeah, you. Thanks, John. Hey, if you have any ideas for us, please let us know. Email us at podcast at com. Wherever you're listening to us, please follow us, like us, share us. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at Hub Hyperion. Until next week, have a great one, everybody. We're glad you could join us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email or send us a recorded audio message at podcast at thehyperionhub.com. Find us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Hyperion Hub is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or its subsidiaries. We'll meet you next time at the Hyperion Hub. (laughs) 